You're listening to Test, Learn, Grow, where we believe that all marketing should create value, build trust, and inspire change. This is the Level Agency way. Hey, Miles here from Level, and I am proud to be your podcast host. In every episode of Test, Learn, Grow, I'll be joined by agency team members and other members of the marketing community for radically candid conversations on all things marketing. So without further ado, let's dive into today's episode. Hey everyone, Miles again here. Before we get to our interview today, popping in for a bit of an explanation for what you are about to hear. You're going to notice that the audio sounds different from our typical interview format, and that is because this was done live. We had our inaugural Level Agency Summit earlier in 2021. Following all the necessary COVID precautions, we had everybody in person, and we had some guest speakers come in and deliver some amazing Q&As to the entire company. And this episode you're about to hear features Michael Rubino, a visual design manager with Luma Institute. We talked with Michael all about design thinking. What is it? What are design thinking principles? How can we leverage those in our work here at Level Agency? And listening to this podcast, how can all of you leverage it as well? So you will hear me, you'll hear Michael, and you will also hear Brad Stevenson, our VP of Group Accounts. He joined me on stage for this interview. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Michael Rubino from the Luma Institute, all about design thinking. Let's get into it. Welcome back, everybody. I'm really excited to have Mike Rubino with us today. So Mike Rubino is the visual design manager at Luma Institute. Luma Institute uses human-centered design to help companies do things better, basically. So I have been friends with Mike, though, for uh, quite a while, and he is also one of the founders of Arcade Comedy Theater, Pittsburgh's only nonprofit comedy theater, which will be reopening again very soon. We, we feel it in our hearts. But uh, And Mike and I have been performing together for a while. I'm not going to talk too much about that because if you want to hear anything about what we do together at Arcade, you can listen to like the first hour and a half, I think, of the podcast interview I did. But uh, we're really excited to have Mike here. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Mike Rubino. Thank you. Thank you for that.
Thank you for having me here. Thanks Miles. for being. Thank you, Brad. Thank you to all of you for um, eating your lunch in front of me. This is wonderful. <laughs> it looks delicious. So yeah, my name is Mike Rubino. I'm a visual design manager at Luma Institute. Luma is a company here in town, uh, but we're also a global company in terms of having employees all around the world and serving clients all around the world. And our, our main goal is to empower organizations to, to make things better, to work better, and we do that by teaching them the Luma system, which is basically a collection of design thinking and or human-centered design methods and skills. And so, yeah, my job as a visual design manager, I started over five years ago there as just a visual designer, and my, my role was to make help make their products look good, help make their marketing look good, communicate visually, but then also I'm a trained instructor, certified instructor there, so I teach their workshops sometimes too. And we teach both public workshops here in town. We used to do it here in town, but now we do it virtually. And that we primarily work with large enterprises and we teach them how to teach themselves basically. Most of our clients, our biggest clients are in like the five to 20,000 employee range or have offices across the globe, a lot of different tech companies and banking companies and things like that. And so we sort of become embedded with them teaching workshops and certifying employees as practitioners, facilitators, and then their own instructors. So the point being, we want people to learn how to teach themselves and say, thank you, Luma. Thank you. And then we leave. And then they just carry on and grow their own sort of design thinking practice within. So yeah, so that's, that's my role there. So the question I have to start with then is, what is design thinking? Yeah. Good, good question. Uh, <laughs> how many people here consider themselves a designer? Can you raise your hands if you're a designer? See, like one, two, three, a half hand, a sandwich hand. Great. So like five, five people. So I think in order to answer that, Luma likes to sort of abstract it a little bit more. And I think that we really believe that everybody is a designer whether or not you went to school for it, everybody designs stuff and everybody can therefore think like a designer. And so we really love this quote. It's it's inside the, the front cover of our, our handbook. It's on our website. It used to be when we had offices, it was on the walls of our offices. But there's a gentleman named Herb Simon who was a CMU professor. He also won a Nobel Prize in economics. And in the 60s, you know, his, his colleagues are like Buckminster Fuller and other like futurists and design and uh, you know sort of systems thinkers, and his quote is that everybody designs who devises courses of action aimed at taking like current situations and making them preferred situations. And so basically, that means if you do anything to make what something is now into something better, you are designing. Right? Everything in our world is designed from the, the font in a book to this room, to the clothes that you're wearing, to the pop that you're drinking, to the systems or the processes that you do in your day-to-day -day work. Everything has been designed. And so therefore, Luma really believes that everybody <coughs> is uh, a designer in some way. You don't have to go to school. Like, I went to school for graphic design and got a degree in that, but that's just one type of design that everybody can design. And so therefore, we really think that everybody can use design thinking or human-centered design to, to make things better. And so by that, we think that, you know, everybody, therefore, can adopt a mindset of, of, of what a designer thinks about. And so, like, usually designers, when you're in design school, you learn, like, that, you know, that feedback is important, that the things that you're making are going to get, like, torn apart and remade. You're going to sketch something crappy and, and learn from it. And most importantly, you're rarely just solving a problem for the sake of a problem. You're solving a problem for in service of a person or a customer or a client and things like that. So uh, empathy being a, a huge com uh, component of that. So these are the types of behaviors, the types of mindsets that we think that everybody's capable of. And you just need to learn how to build them up. And that's where design thinking comes in. Did Can that answer your question? Yes. Do you think? <laughs> I mean, it, yeah, you can poke holes in my answer later. But <laughs> So you mentioned empathy being mm -hmm. a key part of that. Can you dig in a little bit deeper? Because obviously what we do at Level Agency and what we talk a lot about is 
leveraging empathy, understanding the consumer, our audience, understanding not just who they are, but what they need, what their problems are, because a big piece of what we need to be doing is breaking down the barriers and presenting to them a solution to their problem and proof around that solution. Can you talk a little bit about the, the steps beyond empathy? And also, what are some of the tools you use to, you know, to, to share empathy, to understand audiences? Yeah, yeah. So, so you know, when, when you practice design thinking, when you, when you start to think like a designer, there are, it's not so much a process. It's not really like you follow this step and then this step and this step. Because if you, if you Google design thinking, that's might, that might be what you find. Or if you learned it about it in school, you are familiar with like the D school or IDEO's, you know, like honeycombs of like, here's the process. But really design thinking or human centered design is a mindset. And with when you start to work that way, you build up these behaviors, right? And empathy is a big one of them. And we truly believe that, you know, if you're working in a human-centered way, you're doing that in the service of somebody. And, and, and so that is like a higher order thing than just a bottom line of like, I got to make money, right? Because customers don't care if you have to make money. They care about why they would want to connect with you or engage with you and why they want to click on your ad or whatever it might be. And so you have to understand what that, like what their mindset is. Your mindset might be to make a profit. Your, your client's mindset might be, we got to sell shirts or we got to sell X, Y, and Z. But digging deeper and understanding that is important. And so that, that requires a little bit of a mindset shift to start asking questions, right? And to start being more curious before you start to solve the problem. And so rather than like getting a, you know, a command or getting a directive or getting a brief and then running out and doing it, we challenge everybody to start thinking a little bit more about the problem space and how you're going to frame it and doing that through some very like lightweight methods, you know, whether that's interviewing somebody and asking some questions or doing some more immersive types of ethnographic research and things like that. I'm going to just flip through here and see. So, so the Luma system, and I'll dig into this a little bit more, but we sort of, what we did was if you Google design thinking, you're going to come up with like thousands of methods, right? There's like thousands of methods on the internet for, that are called design thinking or systems thinking or, or things like that. And so what we did was we curated that list. We combined some things. We, we surveyed like literally over a thousand methods and we clustered them and found similar ones and found the best that we think that everybody can use, the most approachable. So you don't have to have a design degree, you don't have to have an engineering degree to do these things. But these methods will therefore build up, if you start practicing these things and doing them in your day-to-day -day work, no matter if you're in HR or in accounts or you're in sales or you're in design or development, if you start working this way, empathy and creativity and being visual or curious, these things just start to like uh, bubble up within you. It's easy to just say, be more empathetic, but how? And so doing some of these methods and, and working this way can help you do that in like a very tangible and easy way. So they're organized under looking, understanding, and making. So looking really means like observing the human experience and trying to do some research, like see how people interact with the world, learn about what they what they care about. Understanding is about analyzing and making sense of that data. So, you know, how do you tame complexity? How do you take all of this research we just did and all these interview notes and everything, and how do we make sense of it? And making is about envisioning the future, making things to envision, you know, making a prototype, making a storyboard, designing a poster or slide deck to share with people to help them envision the future. This isn't a process. You can do these things in any order, but all of them help you build empathy and help you be more imaginative and curious. I can keep going. Do you want me to dig into this a little bit more? I do. Yeah. I think what I, you know, if you can frame this, you know, think about a client that you've worked with or a company that you've worked with. And maybe if you have a good example, as you walk through this, that would be really great to kind of solidify for us what this process would look like in action. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess a, a, a great way to, to start would be like, you know, when you are, so I guess an example that comes to mind is we had a, we work with a lot of school systems. They come to us for training and things like that. 
and I believe it was Steel Valley, but don't hold me to this, but it was a local school. They were looking to turn their, one of their like storage rooms or maybe it was like an annexed like gymnasium or something like that into an innovation lab. And so they wanted to start doing the work to think about how, like, we got to do this. We want to turn this lab into, into, you know, a new room with an innovation space and and whiteboards and, and tables and stuff like that. And so before they went off and just started building, they really wanted to make sure that they talked to the right people and that they got the right input. And that may not always be the person that is giving you the order or asking you to do the thing. And so one of the things that they did was they, they, they drew up a stakeholder map, which is a, a fancy term for just like drawing lots of little stick figures, all the different people that might be involved in the school. So they were like, let's draw a stakeholder map of all the different people that might use this room or interact with it, that might work at the school and care about this, this project. And in doing that, they identified, you know, some different teachers to talk to, some different administrators. And one of the key people was a janitor, right? The people that would have to be cleaning the room and all of the rooms. And so then they set about the project. And one of the first things they did, I have circled here, is they did some some interviews and they did some what's on your radar, which are two different methods. They're very lightweight. Anybody can do them, right? Interviewing, we know as like, it's a core thing that reporters do and middle school kids do, right? And you can do it too. It just means that like you truly sit down with somebody and you talk to them about what is important to them related to the subject that you're investigating. So they did a bunch of interviews. They talked to you know the teachers and they talked to the janitors who would be cleaning the room and they learned a bunch of different things. There's also a, a secondary method called what's on your radar, which is asking somebody to sit down, get on a digital whiteboard and prioritize like what's important to them or what they're concerned about based on like a radar. So like what's your, what's the inner circle is the most important thing. So only put things, it can only hold so many things. So what is, what goes in that inner circle, in the outer circle, you know, and so on. And through all of that research, they learned things that were important and they discovered some things that they may not have otherwise because they talked to this janitor. <coughs> Fast forward to the point where they're building the room and they have their grand opening and this dude shows up and is like, overwhelmed with emotion, this janitor, because nobody has ever asked him to be a part of a project like this before. Nobody like thought that he was, you know, worthy to talk. Like, why would I give input on a, on a building project? But it was like, because they did that work up front of examining the problem and thinking about the humans that would be involved in this, they were able to like get new findings and, and learn some new insights from this person that is only like, a tertiary individual involved in, in the room and how it might function. But that person was important too, and we brought them in. And so so that's kind of like the mindset that design thinking can build, right? It's like thinking about the problem before you run off and do it, and then thinking about the individuals tied to that problem. And it's not always the people you assume it is. They're you know challenging your, your assumptions and getting a little bit more curious about who might actually be the target of my ads or who might, you know, I assume like if I'm going to market a Dungeons and Dragons ad, right? Like I can make some assumptions about who's into that. But if you have looked at television nowadays and, and Dungeons and Dragons sort of like venture into like normal zeitgeist and popular culture, you know that like, oh, there's like, a lot of girls that are into it now <laughs> and like it's not just dudes in their basements it's like oh this is something that grandparents play and women play and like lots of different people play that are beyond maybe the stereotypical assumptions and so if you dig into that you might learn oh okay well somebody that's into yoga or somebody that's into like wellness or new age type of things might also be into dungeons and dragons and that's a different it's a different sort of sector that I wouldn't have targeted if I had just gone with my like gut assumptions. We talk about that a lot with validation testing and making sure we're you know expanding our approaches to audiences and then testing against those assumptions. So that's that's really great. Miles, do you have a question for Mike? I think it's on. <laughs> do you find people fall in any like traps? 
Like they're, we're all excited now. We're going to go and be design thinkers, right? And we go to do this thing. And there's a common mistake that people make when they're first starting out. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. The biggest trap is making a big deal out of it. And, and by that, I mean, as somebody that like, you know, I, I've been a di- like a, a traditional designer for, for a long, long time. And uh, when I first started at Luma and I started taking all their, the training and then becoming an instructor, I was like super jazzed. Because once you start working this way, and once you build up a mindset of, you know, thinking like a designer, it's hard to work any other way, right? And so I immediately wanted to take this to the theater that I work at. I immediately wanted to take it home to my wife because we were like, at the time, we were thinking about buying a new house. And I was like, great, great, great. We, I've got so many, uh, we can do rose thorn bud. We can do affinity clustering. And, uh, and you hired a janitor, I assume. <laughs> yeah, and I talked to the janitor. And, you know, everybody that I tried to bring this to was terrified and it became intimidating because I started using like jargon and I started to build it up too much. And funny enough that you asked this, we literally have a a post on our, an article on our blog going up today about making this stuff stick within a company. And the, the number one thing that we, that we tell folks is like, just start doing it and, and just bake it into your everyday in small ways. And the more that you do it, the more that you bake it into your, your day, whether it's, you know, doing very, very lightweight interviews with your clients before you, you know, set off to start building stuff for them or talking to other stakeholders, it becomes less intimidating, but also like, don't worry so much about naming what you're doing. So, you know, we have these 36 methods and they all have a name because they have to be named something. But if you lead with that, it suddenly becomes like a, there's, there's like a gate that goes up and there's, there's, you know, knowledge that you don't have or that somebody else doesn't have and they feel weird. And it's, that flies in the face of what human centeredness is. So really my best advice is like, just don't make a big deal out of it and just start doing it in like a very casual way. If you want to do what's on your radar with somebody and you're trying to like get them to codify and prioritize like their concerns or what they're most interested in, just say like, hey, I I gotta, I wanna just try and and learn from you a little bit and I thought we could do it this way. Here's how this works. Just write on, write some post-it notes down and let's just start doing it this way. And I think that that is, that's the biggest pitfall I see. And then I guess the, the follow-up would be, don't think that design thinking has to be prescriptive. It, it is not a process. There are processes that use it, but it can supercharge and change how you work already. So this isn't like a, I have to change, you know, the, the different processes that you might have within your departments. This is more like, how can I use some design thinking methods in the, the you know, the stages of, the process that we're already used to. This isn't a big giant change that you have to like change everything about how you do it. It's more like, how can I do what I'm already doing better? Can we talk about the book a little bit and the, the method in particular? I would love, so I really like the book and I think what I find most fascinating is the book really says, if you're trying to do this, here is a suggested set of basically a recipe to get to an end result. So do you want to talk a dig a little bit more into this? Uh, spoiler alert: Everybody here is going to get a copy of Luma's book today, which is great. Very generous of them. Um, I have had a copy for a while now, and it's always a really nice way to go back and say, "I'm trying to do this thing. What are some of these activities and exercises that I can lead people through to help solve a particular challenge?" So yeah. I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that recipe approach to the book. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, so everyone uh, is going to get a copy of our book, which is called Innovating for People. And it's a, it is truly a handbook of our system. So, like I mentioned, I'll go back here so you can see it. These are our 36 methods in the Luma system. They're organized, like I said, by looking, understanding, and making. And that's sort of how the book is organized. So, you can open it up. You can read a little bit about what human-centered design is and design thinking. But it's truly more of a handbook that you should like keep on your desk and pull out when you want to do some of these things. It's not really like a curl up in bed with some wine and read. I bet you have. Oh, but I have. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. This isn't, this is a clean version. This isn't my, uh, so yeah, so it's, it's made to be like, 
written on and, and dog-eared and, and really flipped through. But the, the important thing is, and what makes what we teach really powerful and accessible to people is that, you know, yes, these one-off methods are great on their own. You can do an interview, you can draw a stakeholder map, you can do what's on your radar or any of these other methods on their own and get results that feel good. The power of the system is that all of these methods are created in a way that they are similar to like Legos in that when you combine them and they feed into one another, you get different outcomes. Or we really use the metaphor of recipes. We call them recipes. And if you think of these ingredients or these uh, methods as ingredients, you might, you know, if you're trying to bake a cake and you're trying to make a scone, some of those ingredients are the same. They both might use flour and sugar, but how you approach them in what order you do stuff might change the outcome. So you might have a scone or a cake. And that's sort of how these work. So at the bottom of every page is a sample combination where we say like, hey, if you like this method called round robin, it's a great method. Here's how you can combine it with like four other methods in a series and a sequence to get a specific kind of result. And, and that just takes like the, it just exponentially increases the effectiveness of these things because you, you do a thing and that creates like an artifact or, or some sort of output. So if I did round robin, at the end of that exercise, you have four ideas that you have critiqued and you've all collaborated on and you've passed your ideas around a table and now you have four cool ideas. So you might now pick a different method to help you prioritize those ideas and pick the one that is best suited to serve your client or the challenge you're trying to face. And so it's really great for like, yes, for building empathy, but also for building empathy like amongst teammates because it, it reduces friction. It helps everybody's voice be heard in different ways. So there's lots of methods that like, if, if, you know, if Brad's in the room, but it's also a bunch of new hires, you might be like, I might defer to whatever Brad wants to do. But if you follow some of these methods and you work this way, suddenly everybody's voice becomes democratized and equal and, and ideas are what really get pushed forward. So the book is a great way to start. The recipes on the bottom of the pages are really cool to try out. And then to me, the next step is going onto our website and we have a, a digital platform called Luma Workplace that has like 90 plus recipes and also ways to like dynamically build your own recipe. And then it will like has AI driven sort of facilitation guides. So it like will make, tell you the newbie how to like facilitate like a pro and get, get results from these sorts of things. So, but yeah, this is a great way to start. The book is awesome. We also just, as of last week, made all of these methods free on our website. So you used to have to like subscribe to Luma Workplace to get the contents of this stuff, but now it's all on our website in open source. So. I'm glad you mentioned AI, because I was going to ask that. You said the phrase human-centered design, and you can't throw a stone without hitting somebody talking about AI these days, right? right, right. Robot-centered design, I guess. Is that colliding at all in your world? Where, like, are you designing for... AI first versus humans first? Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting, it's an interesting challenge. And I, I can say that, you know, I, I'm not on the, I'm not so much on the client side to know how they're handling it, except that, you know, AI is, if you're, if you're depending on your use for it, like ultimately AI for now is serving humans. <laughs> oh my God. For now. <laughs> I mean, wow. at some point it's- What do you know? Uh, well, <laughs> You know, but like AI is <clears throat> is still in the service of humans, and so you hopefully want to to you know create it in such a way that like really not just for its own sake, but like what is the why? Why are we actually using it? Is is AI the thing we need to solve this problem? Sometimes it might be, but sometimes it isn't. And so I think that like really challenging ourselves to to use like AI to me is just another tool of solving problems for people and, and maybe it's going to solve it in a lean way in a faster way in a way that is like more efficient which is great we just have to make sure that it's solving the right problem so i think that whether you're using ai or not problem framing is like almost as important as problem solving like making sure questioning the question making sure that you're you're really like solving the. there's nothing more frustrating than building like a 
building software or building an algorithm or something to solve a problem and then you get there and you realize that great it does this but that isn't actually what i needed it to do and so if i had asked the right questions a while ago i think it was frank lloyd wright that said it's easier to use a, an eraser on the draft table than a sledgehammer on the work site and like that's really true like if we can solve this problem on the draft table when we're scrappy and we're before we go and build the code and do all that stuff, it'll be a lot cheaper, it'll be more efficient, we'll, we'll get to the right thing. And so I just hope that AI is still gonna be human-centered. Um, <laughs> that's an interesting teaser for Patrick Patterson's AI conversation. <laughs> yeah. It's like perfect. So I, you know, I, thinking about what we do, I, I wanna make sure we open it up for questions, but I would love to talk through you know, specifically what we do as we think through challenges for our clients in the advertising world. And I would love to just do a little bit of conversation around like, okay, if you were to approach a problem that we might have, and I'm going to ask, this is a little bit of audience participation. I'm going to ask somebody to actually pose a challenge that we're working through. We don't have to say client names if we're releasing these, uh, these recordings, but I would love to get a little bit of a challenge and think through like, how would you use the recipes in the book to kind of build an outcome? Sure, let's do it. Cool. I'm putting you on the spot. A hey, great deal here. That's fine. I'm both an improviser and a, a human-centered designer. Perfect. I can do it. So who would like to participate? Jonathan Gogler. The challenge I'm thinking immediately is sorting a B2B buyer from a B2C consumer for chocolate. Can you do it? Okay. So, so elaborate a little bit more. And so, somebody hits your website. Yes. Are they going to add a thing to their cart and take it home, or you know, acquire it, or are they looking at a, a bigger organizational buy for a wider, much more involved process of a sales conversation? And then, you know, are we are we are we conducting that transaction right now here on the spot, or are we just starting a conversation? That's a great question, and that's a great problem, and and you know. I can say that that is something that Luma thinks a lot about, right? Because we do have both of those things. I mean, our primary clients are enterprises, big organizations, but we also believe deeply in our soul that, that design literacy is for everybody. So we want to always have books and public workshops and ways for anybody, teachers, individuals, freelancers, whatever, to sign up for our stuff, which is a sort of a B2C thing. So if I were to look at our system and think about this, you know, I would absolutely and always start with a, a stakeholder map, specifically thinking about who's coming to our website. And I think from there, the stakeholder maps are super quick. You can do it in like 15 minutes. Usually it's based, the first time is based on your assumptions. So it's like, I, I think I know the people that come to our website. Or if you're really embedded in this project, you might really know. So I would maybe draw like a stakeholder map and I would look at it with maybe some of my colleagues. And uh, usually when I draw a stakeholder map, there's areas that get fuzzy. Maybe it's on the margins or, you know, you're trying to strike that balance between like with uh, breadth and depth. And so it's like, maybe I understand this type of client that's coming in here, but I'm not exactly sure, which is great. So I would look at the areas where I maybe don't understand or, or am not sure how the type of clients that they might be interacting with me. And I would probably conduct, uh, either conduct some interviews with current clients or try to reach out to people that aren't clients and truly like talk to them for 20 minutes with a set of questions that are very open-ended about the types of things that they're looking for. Maybe I'm gonna do those and, and then I would go back to refresh my stakeholder map and fill in some blanks. I think eventually I want to move towards building personas. You may already have them. Personas need to be updated every once in a while, but usually a good persona profile is based on data and actually like interviews and things. To me, the best ones have actual quotes from actual people that we've like stripped away. But, you know, having like we at Luma have built up personas over the past few years where it's like now that's shorthand amongst my staff so I can say like, Oh, uh, you know, what would Rebecca do in this situation? Because we know in the back of our minds, Rebecca meets this, 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 this criteria, or is this type of client. So she's a D and D player who does yoga. Yes, yes, absolutely, and and she loves Luma, and so yeah. So I, I think that 
like part of this is internally we build like a building up a shared language that is human centered. So not just like jargon and acronyms, but it's like, oh no, we know personas build up people, right? And so we're reminded that these are people. So then we have these personas and we can use those as as perhaps ways of testing our own our own UI and, and our user experience. So that's when I move over to the making categories and think about schematic diagrams and appearance models. But even, you know, like schematic diagramming, if you're not familiar, is truly just drawing like interfaces and wireframes and thinking about how you get from point A to point B. To me, a much more human-centered way to start is to storyboard. And that really just means like taking a minute with some post-its or very small and drawing some, like truly drawing the person sitting down at a computer, what they're thinking and what the clicks that they might be going for to try to understand what they are thinking during this process. And so to me, that's about like thinking about is my website built up properly so that somebody going there knows the decisions that they're supposed to make. And because I'm visualizing it in a storyboard, I'm slowing down ever so slightly to think about every step that they're doing and it really like not breezing past like oh they go to the website they find the thing they add it to their cart and they buy it but how do they find the thing where is it what are they thinking while they're looking and really like thinking through that entire process with a storyboard is super lightweight i think everything i've described outside of arranging interviews and talking to people can be done like in a day or two days Personas can take a while, depending on how deep you want to go. But all of this stuff can be done very sort of quickly, very roughly and iteratively. So it's like all of these things should be living documents. But if you if you're starting with understanding the people and building up some personas and then applying those personas to an experience, you can start to think about what they might be doing. Then there's like design work that has to happen. Where it's like, I've thought about this process, I've drawn these wireframes, I'm going to hand it off to people to make it like visually something that they can actually click. You know, at Luma, we use Figma, we use Envision, things like that. But there's lots of different pieces of software that enable you to like make clickable prototypes. That's to me like the second part of this, which is once you have a thing, or if you already have a thing, then it's super duper valuable to get anybody and everybody to do what we call think aloud testing. They are clicking around in your prototype or on your website and they are putting their brain on speakerphone and they're talking and they are saying what they're reading, but also saying what they're thinking and, and, and how they think the things work and why. And, and usually after like five or six people, it doesn't take a lot after about five or six people, you start to see patterns emerging and those big red flags around like, oh, the the enterprise level stuff is not described properly or our homepage is really geared towards this person and not another person. Or in my instance, one of the last Think Aloud tests I did for when we were redoing our website, we found out that nobody cares about a homepage and, and most of the people were either looking at the top nav or the footer and they were scrolling past all this stuff that we like meticulously wrote and designed for the homepage. Nobody gave two craps about it. They were just like, oh, down here is what, I, is what I'm looking for. So we knew that we had to like really make a better footer, which is something I would never have thought about. <laughs> so yeah, so, I, uh, so that's probably enough. I think I feel like I've overwhelmed everybody with <laughs> the number of methods. But again, these are like tiny recipes that I could do. So I could do stakeholder <clears throat> mapping, do some interviews, go back and revise my stakeholder map. And that's like two hours worth of work. And now I have a thing that I can like share and reference and I've had the conversations and I now have more empathy for the user and the types of people coming to my site. I think sometimes we, we rush through some of that where, where we need to be much more thoughtful about those complex problems, right? There are some smaller problems that we solve every day. Mm -hmm. We can move more quickly. The other piece of that that I wanted to ask about is you've made the switch to virtual as we all have. Can you talk a little bit about your collaborative process and how you have, you know, made that work? Yeah, yeah, online? absolutely. I mean, so we at least had the, you know, we went from like almost entirely in-person 
workshops where we get 20 people in a room for two days and we do these design thinking workshops. We went from that to, you know, within a month, we had to like completely change everything and launch online workshops. The, the benefit was that we would all, we as a distributed team across the country and the world, we were already kind of working this way. So in the last 18 months, like digital whiteboards have become legit in a way that they weren't two years ago when I was using them. So Mural and Miro, confusingly named, but they're, <laughs> they both work slightly differently. They're both amazing and very helpful for collaboration. But we've also hacked everything. So we also, if, if we can't afford it or a client can't uh, afford subscriptions to those, you can do design thinking on Google like slides. You can draw little boxes as post-it notes. You can use, Google also has a thing called Jamboard, which is quite bad, but it's, it will get the job done in a pinch. It's free. But yeah, so there, there are digital whiteboard tools. Our platform in the workplace now connects to Miro and Mural and the thing called Klaxoon, which is the third one, uh, where if you're looking at one of our methods or one of our recipes, there's a button, you can just hit it and it takes you to, to Mural and then it has like all the templates set up for you so you can just start doing this stuff. So that was a big thing for us was building those integrations so that somebody using Workplace and looking up a method could get into using it digitally right away. But then also as we use Zoom to you know, connect with people and have these conversations, we still haven't lost our sense of like using paper and post-it notes or big markers and stuff to sketch on our desks and hold things up, right? Or make paper prototypes and scan them with our phones. So we basically have just had to learn a little bit more about how to, like what is best on your desk, on paper? What is best like collaborate, like, and then collaborate by talking or by holding things up or by sharing photos all in a collective Google doc or something like that versus what is best for digital whiteboards and like, can we get everybody in there and making post-it notes and things like that. I'd say the, the one challenge I've seen is that, you know, all of these, so many of these design thinking methods were, there's like some human science behind them. There is some like limitations that are good constraints that are good. For example, a post-it note, which is like to us the best form of like writing and communicating is like these little tiny pieces of paper. And they're great because you can only fit so much on them. And we tend to only use, okay, carry around with me. We only use like thick Sharpies in post-it notes because you can't be verbose. You can't have a million bullet points. Ideally, you're drawing a little tiny picture and then you're like, maybe writing a couple of words next to it. And it, it, it forces us to like be more succinct, to get to the point quicker, to be a little bit more candid and a little bit more earnest in what we're trying to like give feedback on or have ideas for. And I think the one caveat to digital collaboration is that like you can type as much as you want in one of these little like post-its and the text is gonna keep getting smaller as you like write war and peace on like a little square. So. Some of those like good constraints, you have to sort of solve for them if you want to work this way. But, but yeah, overall, I'd say that like, thank goodness for digital whiteboards, at least for us to like maintain some of the ways that we work. And I think if anything, this has shown that we all just have, we can all, we all have it within us to like hack something together to be scrappy. You know, Zoom added tools where you can like have a second camera. So like some of our, when we teach our workshops, we have like a phone that we call the sketch cam and it's just facing down on the table. And so when somebody wants to draw a concept, they're drawing over here and they're sliding it. And it's like an old school overhead projector type of thing, but on Zoom. And so like those kinds of things, you know, if you mess around with them, the best part about working this way is that it's super fun and it's way more fun than, than just talking like around the table in a meeting. It's way more fun than writing a long email. It's like if you're collaborating and you're working visually and you're being empathetic and just doing different methods, you're going to have more fun doing the things you were and, and accomplishing the things you were going to do anyways. Well, I want to make sure we have time for a break. But before that, I want to get to a couple of questions from Mike today before he leaves Zoo. Hey, man. Hey, Zoo. Long time friend. So 
I, uh, I had a quick question. We The war that we are waging a lot is that we have just campaign after campaign coming down the pike and you know every week dealing with maybe three new campaigns. Our particular client challenges us in that way, but I'm sure that you're not alone. How do you build design thinking into the process when you have to move so quickly and always be kind of juggling three or four things at one time? Great question. When you say campaign, do you mean like you're setting up digital campaigns? like? Well, in this case, let's call them efforts. I mean, yeah, there's even dozens of digital campaigns, but let's call them three or four efforts at one time. Okay. Yeah. So I, I think the the main thing is that, you know, none of these things have to take, they, they only take as long as you want them to take. And many of these things, these methods can be done like in 10 minutes or, or 15 minutes. And, and honestly, time boxing stuff is like the way to go when it comes to any of these things. So... You know, I'm on the team, currently at Luma, I'm on the uh, community and communications team. We're a team of four. We primarily handle all the marketing and all the community building, the blog, internal newsletter, like we do lots of different things. We work at quite a clip. And I think that the main thing that we do is we are fierce about prioritization. And so we use a very simple method. It's called an importance difficulty matrix. And you're really thinking about what is the most important thing I need to do right now and how difficult is it? And, and there's ways to slide things around and, and you sort of prioritize. So I think that, and then once we've moved stuff, we're always moving stuff off of there and then bringing on new projects or new efforts and reprioritizing those. And so it at least in that instance, when you're fiercely prioritizing stuff, you are knocking off like the quick stuff when you can do it, you're, you're being more mindful about the strategic stuff that is maybe high value, but it takes a long time. So that's one way that we do it. We also, it's not a method, but we use Trello quite a bit for like lots of card sorting, like Kanban style, moving stuff along. But when you are, are every one of these efforts different or are they all kind of the same thing? Uh, I mean, how different is different? I mean, because they all have different intent. They all have different audience uh, files. So, I mean, there's, there's definitely some, some unique thinking that has to go into each one. Yeah, and so I think that building up some, like, yeah, you won't have time to necessarily do, like, build persona profiles all the time or, like, new ones or things like that. I think that making work visible and having some time, like, even if it's five minutes to do, like, post-mortem stuff after each campaign can really help. So for us, when things get done, usually within like a day or two, we would try to do a method called roses, thorns, and buds. Like what is good, what was bad, what were opportunities to explore next time. And usually what we do is we will have a, a mural board um, or we'll have, if we were in person, we'd have sheets of paper with three sticky notes of each color. That's it. And so it's like, hey, what were your top three good things about this campaign or things that were successes, what were three things that didn't work, and what are three areas where maybe we want to explore for next time. And all that's preset for our team. So it's kind of like, well, as soon as we're done, we go over here, and maybe once we've seen like the results of whatever it is we're doing, if we, if we send out an e-blast and we're waiting to hear back and we a day has passed and we see how many opens we got, we go over to this mural, we quickly fill out that stuff. And the post-mortem thing is important because it allows us to come together and take a breath before we move on to the next thing. But also we're incrementally learning from each other in the previous campaign. Even if the next blog entry or the next e-blast or the next product we're making is wildly different, we, there, there are learnings that are still there. And so then iterations can, can happen even if it's slightly different because it's like, well, we made this mistake over here, even though this is a different project, Let's be mindful of this. It's really easy to work in a silo or to work by yourself when you have to go fast or even on a team. Like, oh, we don't have time to think about if this worked or not. We got to move on to the next thing. But I think that we, if you if you approach postmortems as very lightweight and low-pressure things where even you do it asynchronously, like, hey, everybody, make sure you go in here and give me your feedback on this campaign Sometime in the next half day, like take five minutes and then you all share them out and you, you read everybody's things. There'll be some like collective learning so that 
It's like AI, but humans, where each time you start to get better and better learning from your past mistakes. So I don't know. Does that Maybe that was helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Cool. I think that is all the time we have for questions. Uh, I will say, though, Mike is uh, and Luma is generously leaving these books for everyone. If you have additional questions, you can let me know. I can pass some things on to Mike. I'm sure Mike would be happy to answer some some questions as follow-ups if you have if you want to go through this book and you're like, I have this burning question about it. I want to uh, allow Mike to just give a Luma plug and an arcade plug. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So let's see. Where am I? Yeah. So you can go to. Uh, so if you want to learn more about Luma. Yeah, please take these books. They're free to you. So if you don't take it, I don't, maybe you don't have a bag or something. I don't know why you would leave a book here. But <laughs> take a book and, uh, and visit our website, luma-institute.com. If you go slash methods, you'll find all of these methods on our website. And then if you want to go deeper, I really recommend you try out lumaworkplace.com. It's, you don't have to put a credit card in. It's free for the first 30 days. And you can build sessions and recipes and, and make agendas for your meetings. But there's also like hundreds of hours of video of our experts like teaching these methods, giving you tips on how to use them. And then there's all kinds of templates that you can either print out or connect to your, if you use digital whiteboards. It's a huge, amazing resource that is kind of this hidden gem that we just kind of built and we give to our clients and things like that. We also teach workshops, but, you know, obviously do those for anybody that wants them. But right now they're all digital and, and online and, and still fabulous. And if you like to see more of me and more of Brad, you can go to Arcade Comedy. Or other people. Oh, yeah, yeah. Really talented, hilarious people. Yeah, we're only there like maybe 2% of the time, really, given given how many other. But uh, Arcade Comedy Theater here in town is a uh, is an awesome organization that really embeds itself in the community and, and puts on really great improv, stand-up, sketch comedy shows. And we're doing that outside, we're doing that online, and we're doing it in person indoors in September, so... Thanks so much, Mike. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this episode of Test, Learn, Grow from your friends at Level Agency. For more information on what we do here at Level, be sure to visit us online at www.level.agency. Tune in next week for a brand new episode of this podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to rate and subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode. And until next time, remember that the best way to do any sort of marketing is to test, learn, and grow.